Scripture lesson is from Matthew's Gospel. I'll be reading chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, down through verse 20. This from the Common English Bible. Now when Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the human one is? They replied, Well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He said, And what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus replied, Happy are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because no human has shown this to you. Rather, my Father who is in heaven has shown you. I tell you that you are Peter, and I'll build my church on this rock, and the gates of the underworld won't be able to stand against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Anything you fasten on earth will be fastened in heaven. Anything you loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven. And then he ordered the disciples not to tell anybody that he was the Christ. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. If you've ever had your doubts about being part of the so-called church, you are in good company. Over the centuries, we have attempted to tame Jesus down to make the church out to be something it was often never intended to be, and basically, we've made salvation something that's centered upon seeking an afterlife instead of transforming this life, some other world instead of transforming this world, we got selfish, I guess you could say, and we often made it about securing our own interests instead of serving the interests of the greater good. So if you've ever said, church, ah, it's pointless, I say you're talking about the kind of church I've been describing this far, and you would be correct. But the kind of movement Jesus started, well, that's another story. Jesus patterned his approach to ministry after the Hebrew prophets. It was alluded to right here in this text. He spoke truth to power like the prophets did. He resisted the government and political leaders like the prophets did. He stood for the truth often with reckless abandon just like the prophets did. He inspired many just like the prophets did. He angered many just like the prophets did. He, he was intense. He was fierce. He was relentless. And he did not get crucified, by the way, because he was a mild-mannered moderate who refused to take sides. He was eventually crucified because he would not recant his critiques and grievances with the Roman government and the power structures of the dominant religious groups of his day, primarily the Pharisees. And Jesus' mission was risky. He didn't just want to touch the lives of individuals. He longed to change the religious and political systems that were ignoring and even oppressing the poor, the sick, the outsider, those who were forgotten or suffering, anyone on the margins. His mission, his vision for the world was to create a bigger table, not only where everyone was welcome, but where everyone was given equal standing and equal voice. This was his vision. He called it the kingdom of God, a way of living in this world that looks a lot more like heaven. The earliest followers of Jesus in the earliest Christian communities were not even referred to as the church. Did you know that? They were called 
the way. And even their name gives you an idea of their understanding of what it meant for them to be a faithful Jesus-following community. It was a way of life filled with taking risks, speaking truth to power, much like Jesus and the Hebrew prophets before him, all the while serving the needs of the poor and the outcasts and creating room for those who had been left behind or pushed out or forgotten. They held on tightly to this fierce, relentless attitude, the people of the way, that is, this risk-taking identity. One did not seek to become a member of the way because it improved their business networking opportunities or their status in society. One did not join the way in order to sit in worship services or class sessions and wonder hypothetically, hmm, what would Jesus do? One became a part of the way because they realized that the injustices of the world in which they live could only be addressed with a Jesus kind of bold, courageous integrity. So they formed communities of other like-minded people for this anything-but-tame, super-risk-taking way of living. Their goal? To make earth look more like heaven. A beloved community where the inherent dignity and worth of each and every human being would be recognized and celebrated and welcomed into the life of the wider community with open arms. The way, as they were called, addressed the key most pressing issues of their own time, and some of those issues have changed, and yet some of them, they've stayed rather close to the same. Today, we might even identify some of the challenges they were facing as a symptom of a bigger problem and not the root. And so, in some ways, the things they face are almost exactly like some of the things people of the way face today. But for today and the following eight Sundays, we're going to be addressing some of the key challenges of the day in which we live. And we're going to be doing it from a little more adventurous spirit, one like the earliest Christian communities, a more courageous way than many modern expressions of the church we see around us, we're going to tap into our roots. And if we dare, throw caution to the wind. And we're going to talk about what it means to be the church in a prophetic, truth-speaking, power-challenging, Jesus sense of the word of that title and not the modernized, tamed-down, dumbed-down, domesticated approach we so often see today. Over these weeks, we'll talk about some of the same things they wrestled with caring for the poor, sharing our resources, and today being the church and what that truly means. But we'll also discuss some things we've learned about since these early days of our movement, protecting the environment and rejecting racism, which at least the latter was alive and well. Racism was alive and well and, and was a, a problem even during the time these scriptures were written. They just didn't have some of the resources that we have today for discussing some of these challenges. Now back to our text from Matthew's Gospel. Peter, it seems at first glance, was the spark of this movement that we've come to call the church. Or as Jesus called Peter, the rock on which this movement would be built. Now, scholars believe Matthew shows Jesus selecting Peter here, not just as one person, but as one person representing all the followers of Jesus. It would be similar to how kings or queens are sometimes named, but people are really talking about their entire nation, really or an administration. And so Peter represents the whole church to Matthew, scholars believe. And so this is really not an exclusive invitation just to Peter from Jesus upon, you know, to, to get with it and, and be the church. It's an open invitation to anybody who would dare follow Jesus in this way. 
And so rather than being exclusive, it's an inclusive invitation to any would-be followers of Jesus to step up and be counted a part of this movement, which would eventually come to be called the church. Now, we don't have time to go into any depth with Peter's story and some of his activities, uh, you know, failures as well as successes in founding the church. But, but let me just say this. Peter gives me great hope, the character of Peter, because he would deny Jesus three times. Yet he would also preach the first sermon at Pentecost, inspiring thousands of people to want to be a part of the church. Peter had successes as well as failures. Some scholars even argue about this part of the text this morning, about Peter being the rock upon which Jesus would build his church and how it might have been inserted a little bit later into the text. Now, why would this be? Well, because Peter, despite his many failures, never lost his prophetic edge and became an increasingly more important part of founding the church. And he didn't leave a perfect legacy, but he did leave a passionate legacy. And so here in this text, Peter represents anyone and everyone who would desire to be a passionate member of a community closely tied to the zeal of the Hebrew prophets and this man named Jesus of Nazareth. And the author uses the imagery of Peter being a rock upon which this movement would be built to illustrate the strength the church was always intended to bring with it as a force for good in this world. Now, besides this imagery of Peter and those of us who get in on this movement being a rock upon which the movement is built, there's another really strong bit of imagery that's used by this author in this gospel and placed on the lips of Jesus. I'll build my church on this rock. We've been talking about that. But the next phrase, and the gates of the underworld won't be able to stand against it. Now, some English translations render that word for underworld as hell. Others call it Hades in this section. So even the gates of hell won't be able to stand against the church, the text proclaims. And without taking too much time on this, I do want to point out that this is not the sort of hell that many seem to believe in. You know, the one that is reserved for the afterlife and serves as a literal burning place of never-ending torment and punishment for the unfaithful. No, the Greek word here that's translated underworld or hell or Hades is the word Gehenna. And the word Gehenna is not just a word. It's an actual place. It's a proper noun. You see, Gehenna was a valley just outside the city of Jerusalem that became a condemned area because some of the kings of Judah had allegedly sacrificed their own children there as a part of an occult ritual in the valley of Gehenna. And it had enormous gates because it was believed to be cursed and condemned. And so they built enormous gates to keep outsiders from wandering into the area because it was believed to be so cursed. And there have been stories told that Gehenna became the equivalent behind those gates of the modern day landfills where people would bring their garbage. Only instead of burying their trash, they most often burned it. And it was a fire that burned without ending because there was a never-ending supply of garbage being dumped into Gehenna. And so 24 hours a day, seven days a week, ah, the smell of fresh burnt garbage. And when the wind was blowing just right in, out of that valley and into the city of Jerusalem, nobody had to ask, oh, what's that smell? They knew it was Gehenna. And the fires of Gehenna would fill the urban air with the foul smell of burning garbage, reminding its citizens of the terrible deeds that were committed there in the years gone by. 
people were not supposed to be able to enter this, these gates of Gehenna easily. It was designed to keep them out, to protect their very lives. And so we see Jesus tell Peter symbolically that those of us who call ourselves a part of the church have always been asked to do two things, a two-part mission. One, build a community focused on the greater good. And two, stand up against evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. There's nothing tame about that. There's nothing boring or domesticated about that assignment. There's nothing easy about that assignment. It's always been our assignment. Jesus never changed it. The earliest Christian communities lived it. And some of the time, we live it too. But it's time to clarify our calling of what it means to be the church once again so there's no mistaking the task at hand. If you were baptized into this church family or any mainline church or historic church, Roman Catholic or Orthodox or any other kind of church, for, uh, for that matter, the, the minister or the priest led you in some type of baptismal vows. And sometimes the wording changes slightly, but these vows contain the same two-part assignment that Jesus gave Peter. Number one, resist evil. Number two, do good alongside the beloved community. Now, I want you to listen to the questions that I ask baptismal candidates and the answers that they give, adapted from the United Church of Christ Book of Worship. They actually have roots all the way back to the earliest Christian communities in the second and third centuries. Here's what I ask people when I'm going to baptize them. Do you renounce the powers of evil and desire freedom of new life that comes by living in the way of Jesus? And if they dare, they say, I do. Do you profess that following the way of Jesus will be your lifelong commitment? And if they dare, they say, I do. Do you promise by the grace of God to commit yourself to a lifetime of discipleship, to follow in the way of Jesus, to resist evil and oppression, to show forth love and justice, and to witness to the work and word of Jesus as best as you are able? And if they're not scared by now, they say, I promise with the help of God. Do you promise, according to the grace given you, I asked them to grow in the Christian faith, to be a faithful member of the church of Jesus Christ, celebrating his ministry and furthering his mission in all the world? And if they're still standing, they say, I promise with the help of God, usually with fear and trembling. Do these sound like tame, domesticated vows to you? Does this sound overly boring to you? I mean, do these questions sound like something we ask people just before we swear them into an endless life of potluck dinners and spring cleaning Saturdays at the church? Oh, don't get me wrong. We need fellowship. And we need potluck dinners. And we need spring cleaning days at the church. And, and beautiful fall decorations like some of the decorating fairies snuck in here and put up over the week. We need to take care of our buildings, and we need to do certain things. And potlucks and cleaning days, however, are not the main thrust of our calling when it comes to being the church in the big picture sense of the word. Doing good, standing against evil, that's it. The rest is window decoration. Working for the flourishing of every human life and resisting anything that would hinder anyone from flourishing to their fullest human potential. Now that's our calling, right here, right now. Not in the afterlife, but raising heaven and thwarting hell right now. 
in the way and style of Jesus, in the boldness of the Hebrew prophets, with wisdom and discernment. We look out over our community. We seek to find the places where human beings are flourishing, and we join together and throw parties when we find it. And we celebrate human flourishing. And when our eyes are scanning the horizon and we see any place where anyone, even those that aren't just like us, are not flourishing, but rather they're hurting or they're suffering or they're weighed down or they're held back or they're pushed out by injustice or oppression, we come running and we shoulder the burden, a few of us, while the rest work to figure out what's causing it. And we speak truth and love. Now, somewhere along the way, churches have gotten sidetracked and the message, the calling, the thrust of who we are and, and who we're supposed to be has shifted. And, and if I didn't know any better, just looking around by the way that some churches behave today, Jesus would have founded the church by getting everyone in one room and listing off all the key dogmas they were supposed to believe, all the key doctrines they should memorize, and demanding that they all believe and interpret them exactly the same way, which, of course, the highest way should be literally, of course. And then he would have launched off into a mini-sermon on the importance of being a nice, docile, patriotic subject of Rome and properly respecting its flag before he finished up with a nice talk on how important it would be for them to leave this meeting and be extra nice to everybody in the world. And yes, this is how we'll know we are his disciples, by our love, but not a love that is blind to injustice, but a love that seeks to right the wrongs so that all people can truly flourish. And if Jesus had given these talks, and if these things had been his command to his earliest disciples, we wouldn't be sitting here today because the movement would have gained zero traction. Jesus didn't ask Peter or any other disciples to be domesticated, tamed down, mediocre, irrelevant followers. He placed his hands on Peter's shoulder and said, I will build my church on you, and even hell won't be able to stop you. And in the same fierce spirit of the Hebrew prophets in the way of Jesus, we endeavor to live out our twofold calling, doing good and resisting evil and oppression and injustice in whatever forms they present themselves. We've been given a responsibility, and our responsibility includes many things, at the least of which are caring and defending for the earth, to care for the poor, to lead a revolution by means of forgiving others radically when it would be easier to stay mad and hide out. We're the light of the world, and we should be on the forefront of rejecting the evils of racism, not scared to talk about it. Our primary role as followers of the way of Jesus is to fight for the powerless. As an ordinary, everyday way of life, we're called to demonstrate what sharing earthly and spiritual resources look like, up close and in person. And while others shrink back, we're called to lead the embracing of diversity and to demand that the love of God brings all kinds of people together and to celebrate it, that love is love. And while we do all of these things, we enjoy the incredible bonds of a community of people dedicated for the upbuilding and flourishing of every single human being. And we celebrate that we are better together and that we are, in fact, because of our bond, stronger than the very gates of hell. Hell is real, people. And people are living in it right here and right now in this life 
And we are called to storm its gates and rescue those whose lives have been thrown upon the proverbial trash heap because they have been forgotten or oppressed, ignored, pressed down, shut up, shut out, or told they are less than or treated as other. They've been told these things, not just by individuals, but also by systems. And we're called to challenge the systems as well as rescue the individuals. Being the church is risky business. It's not for the faint of heart. And we may have gotten sidetracked before. We may have been taught that being the church was boring and safe and anything but risky. But we know better. And it's vitally important work. Truly being the church may not mean that we can change the whole world overnight. But being the church just might mean that we're able to change the whole world for one person one day at a time. Are you with me? May God help us in this endeavor to be the church. Amen.